Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Hi everyone, I'm joined today by the incredible Catherine of Mother Up. I'm really excited about this episode because Catherine's one of those awesome people who, firstly, I'd like to be when I grow up. (laughs) Stop it. Second of all, she has such a unique story and to have someone you've never met before reach across the internet and say, yeah, me too, is, is just phenomenal. And I also think everyone will really like this episode because, spoiler alert, Catherine's pregnant. So I really want to hear her perspective of that in terms of having gone through postpartum depression, anxiety, OCD. And I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to let Catherine just start. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. It honestly is an honor. I've never spoken about my OCD before. And I think it's a big reason why we bonded initially and I'm so excited to sort of open up on the specifics of my OCD journey and where I'm at now so thank you um I'm sure you've got a list in front of you I do I do (laughs) where where are you feeling like you want to start this journey I guess I thought I would just start a little bit on my undiagnosed anxiety that I had as a as a child and I reflect upon the fact that I was a very very anxious little girl I was fearful of doing the wrong thing. I was fearful of being late. I was fearful of not pleasing people. I was fearful of letting people down. I was fearful of not knowing things. I was ultra organized. That was one of my coping mechanisms. So, you know, this perpetuated through high school and university. I worked myself to death. If I didn't pick something up very quickly, I wouldn't want to do it because I'd want to be really, really good at everything that I tried. And I was constantly seeking reassurance and praise, which is kind of an addiction. But nobody really picked up on that. But yeah, it's actually like I look back at it and go, you know, my perfectionism in life just held me back from so many good experiences. It stopped me from trying at certain things. It pushed me in a in in a in a decision path that probably wasn't the best for me. Um, mm. My motivations were never all that authentic. It definitely impacted decisions that I made in my life. Um, and then, yeah, I had I had physical health complications and I had a period of infertility in my late 20s and I kind of burnt out. Um, then, you know, I was getting gynecological symptoms again and then I had another surgery. I've had probably six surgeries on my pelvis. And um, and then my husband and I thought, oh, let's give getting pregnant a go again because the chances were slightly higher. And, yeah, I fell pregnant with my daughter. And then that's the beginning of the mental health journey, really. That's the beginning of, you know, the magical thinking in pregnancy, the superstitions, um, the worst-case scenarios, the catastrophizing everything, feeling like I didn't deserve having her. Um, and all of this went undiagnosed during my pregnancy. Okay, so this was all before we even get to postpartum. Yeah, this is all in pregnancy. What were some of the thoughts, you know, some of those magical thinking thoughts, for example, that you might be happy to share? I mean, it could be if this, if, if a particular outcome were to eventuate, then that would mean she'd be born fit and healthy. Mm. It, it would be as trivial as that. Um, you know, if this happens six times or if I make this happen six times, then she will be fine. I, you know, it was very religious and superstitious in nature. And I didn't really talk to anybody about that, but it really came out, you know, seeking a huge amount of reassurance during my pregnancy that she was okay. I think I went up to get scanned for low fetal movement or symptoms, maybe like six times outside of seeing a private obstetrician so I was being scanned every appointment from eight weeks 
So I'm not someone that you can sort of go, oh, just kind of generally, you know, see how they're going with their movements and whether there's a pattern. Like I had to know the pattern. I had to know whether it was within like a small confidence mm-hmm. interval. And um, when things didn't fit, if she if she wasn't acting in utero how she was the day before, if I was at all worried, I was up there seeking reassurance constantly that she was okay. Mm. And I know people who have had stillbirths or they've had, you know, late losses and despite the chances, in inverted commas, like the likelihood of that happening being so low, the fear of like that uncertainty led me to believe that it was a more significant risk than it actually was. And that uncertainty really... <laughs> I mean, that underpins most anxiety disorders, all coming back to that need for certainty, that need for reassurance, because we don't have control over the outcome. Absolutely. And that has been my whole journey since being pregnant with her. I've constantly been trying to find certainty that she will be okay. You know, that has always been so terrifying to me and so difficult for me to navigate personally. And the people in my life who were trying to be helpful, they were saying, oh, the chances of that are so low, it really dismissed my concerns and it made me feel out of control that I was having those kind of thoughts and I was constantly seeking that reassurance and Mm. that drove the anxiety and that drove the rituals and the checking and the safety behaviours and kind of of that sort of how it all went tits up really. (laughs) Yeah. How was it approaching birth and the actual birth itself? I know that you, Rebecca, had a lot of anxiety around the birth. For me, the birth was actually really, I was quite calm for it. I think it was still a very surreal experience until she was kind of brought onto my chest and proven that she was alive. Um, You know, I've had so many surgeries before, um, that medical side of it was actually quite easy for me. I knew that I didn't want to have a natural birth and that all came down to, you know, the safest way to have a baby is a planned cesarean. And um, that part of it was was really great. And I think that the first thing was having her and then not feeling the way that I thought I should feel um, when she was here safely I, because I thought if I just get to the birth, just get to her being born, then I won't feel like this anymore. Mm. And the same with work, like with deadlines or performance reviews or whatever, I was always leading up to that point. And then no matter the outcome, the outcomes wouldn't always be great, but I would get some kind of that uncertainty would dissipate because I'd have a result. And with having her, the reduction in anxiety never came. Um, but I look at, you know, what I was dealing with, like the intense anxiety that I was dealing with and I think okay well I had all these amazing coping mechanisms from anxiety that are no longer conducive to being a mother (laughs) and to being a mother of a small baby so I think that led me down the path of developing rituals and safety and checking behaviors because that was the only way that I could appease my anxiety in inverted commas because it actually just perpetuates the cycle but in those moments you know I developed these new behaviors and rituals which kind of became very textbook OCD because I was just searching for some kind of reassurance that everything was going to be okay. And mm. um, it's, you know, it led to this combustion and it was, it was focusing on the weirdest things. It was um, chronically checking that the fridge was shut and the freezer because if the freezer was not shut, all of my pumped milk would defrost and that was the only way that I could be a good mother, in inverted commas, to her. I went through a lot of breastfeeding trauma, supply issues, latching issues. I The supply took a long time to build. I had to take medication to boost the supply. Um, I had to wear nipple shields. It was, a, it was a big drama and highly traumatic for me because I'm not used to trying so hard at something and then it not working. And also coming into it, I thought it was very going to be very straightforward. So that was a big thing. I wasn't set up for the fact that it can be challenging. I didn't get good support off the bat. I had to find the right LC. And so I was pumping so much because I was so worried that I would lose my supply 
And we ended up having enough milk for triplets. Like it was ridiculous and it was my obsession. It was, you know, making sure that the frozen milk was categorized correctly so that I could use it before it would go off. Like I didn't want one drop to be wasted. It was, that was my dedication. And I would say to my husband, if I die in an accident, I want Liv to get all my milk. Like that was the only way in my mind that I was contributing to her. And that sort of perpetuated my dedication to breastfeeding, I suppose. And really, you know, the amount I was pumping and depleting my body and I wasn't eating right because A, I didn't have any education on breastfeeding nutrition and postpartum nutrition. And secondly, I had no appetite because I was so chronically anxious So I lost something like 15 or 20 kilos in the first couple of months after I had her. And so I went down to a really small person and people were like, you look great. (laughs) And I was just, but I was dying on the inside and life was, you know, life was ridiculous. And my husband and my, and my mum were like, come on, like, this is making you so, you're so unwell. Like, maybe we should be looking at other feeding options but I'd sort of gotten the the usual breast is best and Mm. you know formula is really only for adoptive kids or women who have had mastectomies like it's not a viable choice and I felt so pressured to to keep it going and I resented her because I hated breastfeeding and I hated pumping and um you know the lack of sleep because I was getting up every three to four hours, no matter who was looking after the baby, and the lack of sleep really, um, you know, exacerbated the intrusive thoughts and the ruminations, and the ruminations were all about her safety and her health and her development and her growth and her weight gain. And those ruminations just kind of perpetuated the uncertainty that I was facing, that I was doing a good enough job, that she was doing well enough. And, yeah, then I couldn't sleep. And then I broke at about five weeks postpartum, like had a breakdown. Mm. So I know your breakdown, like I know that you sort of went home briefly and then within a week you were back in hospital. Mm. Um, but, yeah, for me it was it was a bit longer. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of the story. So do you want to talk about this breakdown? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, was, it was crying like someone had died every, like most of the day. I was not much of a crier. Right. I was pretty tough. And when I say tough, now I don't look at it that way. I think that if you cry, it's a great emotional release. Mm. But in my past, I was like, you don't cry. You don't don't ever show anyone that you're crying. Right. Okay. See, we're very different people like that. (laughs) Yeah, no, everyone was like really uncomfortable about it. (laughs) My husband's like only seen me cry. You may be like, 10 times in 17 years we've been together yeah. or something like other than that period he was like oh wow like that's a bit weird so <laughs> it's like, yeah it was like you know the alarm would go off in the morning um to get up um or I would just naturally wake and it was you know getting into the shower and just and crying devastating crying going oh my god I can't believe this is my life and then you know, I my intrusive thoughts, yes, they were intrusive in, um, in terms of I could potentially harm her, but they were also intrusive in terms of like just general motherhood intrusive thoughts. So I was like, I should never have had her. Mm. I'm a terrible mother. I think I need to give up for adoption. Yeah. Um, she deserves better than me. I'm going to screw her up. I've ruined my life, you know, all those kind of things. And then you know, the self-loathing really mm. set in and I could never be alone with the baby ever. I was terrified of her, terrified of breaking her, terrified of being alone with her, terrified of what I would do to her if I was alone with her. Mm. And, yeah, so I, I, things that I never admitted to my psychiatrist, like she would say to me, oh, do you go out in your balcony and think, well, I could just drop her over? And I did think that a lot and I would avoid going to the balcony. But I said to her, oh, no, I didn't think that because I thought I could never admit that. Yeah. Because if I admit that, they're going to take her away from me. Mm. And that's a huge one too, that women aren't honest, you know, when they're doing their Edinburgh personnel depression scale mm-hmm. and, you know, just in general talk therapy and people are trying to gain, and you know, ascertain what your symptoms are and how severe they are and I lied all the time. You know, I communicate the, you know, the headline statistics about how common this is, but I still think that there's just so much shame because we just don't, 
you know, people aren't open about their diagnosis, their diagnoses at all. And that's why, you know, despite the fact that it is so common and there's so much more that can be done through pregnancy and in preparation for having a baby and through postpartum support, there's so much that can be done to alleviate distress. People still, you know, feel that shame and the fact that they could be doing better. Yeah, I remember thinking I was going to cause so much harm to her because I didn't enjoy holding her a lot of the time and thinking, oh, she doesn't know who I am, so she wouldn't really mind if I wasn't here. Mm. Um, There was all of that that I had. Um, you know, when I wasn't enjoying her when she was a small baby. I was worried about attachment and security and um, you know, having a secure attachment with me. And as I've gone through this journey, I've been quite fixated on doing it right and the fact that there's no right way and, like, the most freeing thing that has come my way is understanding about how making mistakes is actually good for my daughter. I think motherhood forces us to do that, right? You know, we're forced to confront those things about ourselves that hold us back and that we're worried about for our own children. Absolutely. And um, I hear this a lot from mothers. Mm. You know, I don't want my kid to have the same struggles as, as I have. And there's only so much that we can control, you know, up until this sassy period recently. But but even so, like she's been so attached to me, like the fact that my mental illness journey has not affected it, the bond that I have with my baby. And I think that's just so important for people to know. I can genuinely say, despite everything that I've gone through, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life now because I've actually had the time to reflect and do the work and be in a position to understand, you know, the more important motivations in life now. But yet I'm learning as I go and every day is a new opportunity um, to be a good enough mother for her, really. And good enough mothering is such a thing that we promote because for people like us especially, right, being perfectionist, motherhood is not that at all. You don't get a reward. You don't get that dopamine hit. You don't get any yep. a tick or an A+. Yep. Plus. We don't get any of that. Yeah. So so right, that dopamine hit and that, and that positive reinforcement and feedback that you're doing a good job. You just don't get that in motherhood. So, yeah, yeah, flying by the seat of your pants constantly in, in parenthood and constantly learning. I mean, yeah, I remember like three and a bit years ago when I had Olivia, there's no mother-baby units in Brisbane as we stand. There's one being built associated with the hospital that I'm giving birth at with this baby. But we've got one private mental institution on the other side of Brisbane. And, yeah, that's where I had to go to be assessed and to see a psychiatrist and then I'm walking into like a general mental institution. Which is... Terrifying. terrifying and like we're talking people with schizophrenia and psychosis and I and you know it just I just had that feeling of what the hell am I doing here this is absolutely nuts this is not how it was supposed to be and it and I think that that would really turn a lot of people off from getting help because mm. yeah rather than like a, you know like what your experience was and you've talked about how much how amazing the care was and how you've met some really good friends and women that you've been able to speak directly with about their experiences and relate to them. There was none of that in in this context. And, you know, I obviously didn't stay. I I went to get assessed and I was able to conjure the support at home, 24-hour around-the-clock support that... um, I was able to stay at home. So that that wasn't my experience. But I, I think that mother-baby units can potentially do better with, uh, do better in a lot of ways. But, you know, I talk to my psychiatrist about it quite regularly, you know, the fact that they make you line up for your medication and all of this sort of weirdness. I think, come on, like, I think we can do better for these mothers. Like, you already feel crazy, I'm right? I'm not going to lie. I had the best chats with my <laughs> friends when we were lining up for our medication. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there. It's really, it sounds terrible. Oh, you got to line up for your medication. Personally. Yeah, what are you, what are you getting? Have they adjusted anything lately? Oh, absolutely. Like, <laughs> absolutely. What are you like, taking for sleep? How does it make you feel? I'm like, laughing now. <laughs> Obviously, at the time, I wasn't laughing, but I mean, I, I relate so much to what you say. I, I talk obviously very positively about my MBU. What I probably haven't shared before, I realise, not, you know, deliberately, but hmm. my MBU was attached to a general psychiatric acute hospital. So in order to get to the MBU, you have to go through the general, general acute mission. ward. 
Yeah, yep. Okay. And as a mum holding my one-week-old baby going through reception, and as you say, there were a lot of people with... Very obvious, like they're very obviously not in touch with reality. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, no judgment. But... No, absolutely no judgment, but it was very intimidating and confronting. Yep, I was there. It was the middle of winter. I had tears, you know, a river streaming out of my face. My little boy was in my arms and I'm at reception and, you know, all these people who you don't know, in the middle of COVID lockdown as well, coming up, oh, you've got a baby, how cute, can I see? I'm going to sing to you. It scared the shit out of me. And (laughs) I just thought this is inevitable. This is the step that I have to take. Yes, we're going to go through the MBU process, but at the end of it, they're going to say, Rebecca, you're broken. We're going to lock you in here for life. Your son's going to be taken off you. To be honest, it's for the best. See you later. That's all I could think about. And yes, I laugh now, but at the time, you know, it's confronting. It's very confronting. And I wish we could have a better understanding of people who are in acute psych ward. Not all of them are these dangerous people, you know. And I remember that person on the first day who wanted to come up and sing to my baby. I remember feeling sad when they left. You know, I remember watching them pack their car and leave. And I mean, it gave me hope because I thought, okay, I'm still here, but they're going home. It's like we need mothers who have recovered. I know you would do this, like Mm. who volunteer to come back and and to help with the onboarding and to go, I was here a year ago and this is my, I'll show you a picture of my son and, you know, and I know know how you're feeling because I felt that way too. You know, it's, it's, that would be really powerful. Mm. Something that was really powerful in RMBU is they have a wall. And, you know, these pictures of mums and their babies and they put, you know, these are mums who'd gone through the MBU and however long it was, months or sometimes a year or so later, there were pictures of their babies grown up. And that was everything, you know, to be able to see that and to just hold on to that. Absolutely. I can completely resonate with you because... For me, I was on the Panda website and I was reading about women who had recovered and gone on to have more children and that was the sort of stuff that thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was that real life recovery that I really hung on to. Mm-hmm. And I spoke a lot with my psychiatrist. Um, I started seeing her seven weeks postpartum. She was the head of maternal mental health at a big public hospital in Brisbane Amazing. and so she had seen it all and then she'd gone to private practice and she's like a guru and um, I think one of the best things that the way that she with she does she conducts her liaison therapy is that we don't use any like big confronting mental health terms in there like I just feel like I'm talking to a girlfriend mm. so um, she has made like the experience I've had with her she's made me feel that everything I'm going through is really normal and common and continuously reinforcing the growth that I've gone through and the effort that I put in and yes just that normalization of that of the of the experience and I think psychiatrist or psychiatry in general is still such a scary word. Oh, yeah. You know, it conjures up an image that isn't great. And I understand because some experiences aren't great. There is episode that I recorded last week and you'll hear more about it, but there's something special about perinatal psychiatrists and their expertise and their passion and yeah, the difference. The ones. Oh, man. Yeah. To have someone who knows maternal mental health who can give you that hope Yep. And that treatment, it's huge. You know, those those are the people you want to be reaching out Absolutely. to. And, yes, it's not cheap, unfortunately. No. And that's that's the shitty part is that, you know, it comes down to privilege and being able to afford it. But I, I wish every mum could have a perinatal psychiatrist because it, 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 yeah. I mean, for you as well, like obviously your relationship with your psychiatrist is huge and has been instrumental for you. Yeah, and she has been the one, like we've been seeing each other for over three years. And I remember when she first met me, she says, okay, well, I will be seeing you for at least a year. And I don't know how you feel about this, but I remember thinking, oh, fuck, a year. Like, that's nuts. Like, I'm going to be going through this for a year. And I'm still seeing her three and a half years later. And I don't think I ever want to stop seeing her. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and, and it's such a, um, like a self-care thing for me. And she's mm. helped me through, like, marital problems. And she's helped me through 
um, just my adjustment to parenthood in general. And um, she's been such a, a huge reassuring force for me with respect to fears and issues I've had with Olivia because she's related it back to her relationship with her children. And, you know, talking about intrusive thoughts, like it's been so powerful for me where she is literally saying, I don't have an anxiety disorder, but I have in, I have intrusive thoughts about my children and this, this is what they look like. And I find it so powerful that she's able to do that because it, you know, it normalizes my experience and lets me go, okay, well, this is not something that necessarily has to change. It's about ensuring it's not affecting my daily life. Yeah. So that's been really, really huge for me having that relationship. And she's been really great at helping me get to a position to try to have another baby. And that has been a complicated journey. And I understand the risks, um, but what is so motivating to me is talking to my psychiatrist about the fact that almost all of her severe patients like me have gone on to have more kids and it's almost never as bad. Mm. And a lot of that is that you have that safety net there. It's not as much of a shock. You can have preemptive treatment. You can have continuous treatment. So I continue to see her every month. When I was really chronic, I saw her fortnightly, but it's really been every month and so she's been watching me I've seen her more intensively around my miscarriage that I had earlier in the year and um, you know that miscarriage really drummed up a lot of those old not old but a lot of my checking behaviors and rituals that I had around you know when I tried to have to fall pregnant again and I did and I was you know, really, really scared. And it's understanding that women that have experienced loss, they're almost always going to deal with some level of anxiety, particularly in that second trimester. And some women, you know, it'll continue through. It's about whether or not you're able to live a normal enough life and whether it's well controlled. Mm. And so that's why I'm so happy to have her support. And yeah, I, I said to you before this episode that like every clinical decision that she's made for me has been right across three years, mm. you know, and I've been on multiple different drugs and multiple different dosages and combinations and, you know, getting to a point of really weaning down. I'm on a minimal dose of an SSR right now and then just continuing to monitor that through this pregnancy and understanding that I'm on a drug that I've tolerated through this postpartum so it's likely that I will respond in a positive um, and therapeutically efficient way if I was to fall into another depressive episode after this baby so that's Mm -hmm. also really reassuring for me Mm -hmm. Um, and the fact that my body can tolerate and respond to this drug so there's all of these really great planning and mechanisms that I've put in place with a lot of my health professionals which has led me to be in a position to to have faith and to actually be brave enough to have another baby. We're going to be speaking every day while I'm in hospital. That's what she does with her patients. She's like, I'll find some time during the day and I'll call you and we will check on you and I'll see, I'll speak to you more regularly. So I know that I won't go five weeks and have a breakdown. Like it won't ever get to that point. And we'll do everything possible to intervene, you know, early and quickly and in proven ways that have helped me before so that is just very reassuring to me because really the wheels did start to fall off quite badly when I was in hospital like immediately after birth um we are we're going to be having um night nanny support that was a huge thing and I'm sure the same with you but for me it was a big thing with my psychiatrist she says you need to sleep in order to get better because I'd had five weeks of sleep deprivation um not caused by meeting the needs of my daughter, that sleep deprivation was through the ruminations and the OCD and the anxiety that I was facing and experiencing. So um, we will be receiving help at night, five nights a week for the first probably eight weeks. So effectively, you know, I am utilising that paid parental leave completely for my wellbeing in this postpartum. So that is very, very different. You know, hopefully if you're in a position where you're having a baby and you're getting maternity leave payments, hopefully you can use some or all of that paid parental leave as a way to fund postpartum support because we know the protective nature of postpartum support. We know that as women, it is difficult to put our needs first and to 
and to be open about the support that we receive because it's not all that well advertised and it, it, we're much more glamorized if we could do it all. But the reality is I'm trying to work against that mm. rhetoric and saying, I, you know, this is for the benefit of my entire family that I'm able to have a decent chunk of sleep. Um, that is protective against my, you know, my mental health reducing. And it means that I'll be able to have 18 hours a day or 16 hours a day being a mother who is going to be less resentful, mm. less tired, less snappy with my toddler, less, less snappy with my husband. Um, because our relationship really did go under a huge amount of pressure when I was so sleep deprived and you know, that was a really, really tough time for him too. So I think the fact that we're getting that support from day one means that our relationship is more than likely to be protected as well. Yeah. Um, my husband is, is more directly accountable for things this time. And obviously this time it's we're balancing two children, not one. And we need to build our tolerance at looking after the two children on our own. Like, you know, we need to support each other to get there. And I think that, you know, I've had clients as well who have had postpartum depression with previous pregnancies and I know that this is going to be a worry potentially in the upcoming postpartum but really it's about not trying to eliminate that spectrum of feelings. It's just trying to ensure that that's not reflective of something bigger. And like that was a big thing we went through with my miscarriage was I was like, oh, should we be increasing my medication because I was crying a lot very unstable and she said you need to feel this like you need to process this loss and I'm you know if you're in bed and you weren't sleeping and eating and you were having all these other symptoms then yeah maybe we'd talk about a short-term adjustment but what I like about her is that she's all about you know the minimum and the, the efficient level of intervention whereas previously like the psychiatrist I went to first was like big dosages trying to get me to take sleep medication from day one all this sort of stuff and I'm just really lucky that yeah I ended up getting the right care for me because there's no one pill that's gonna no god no you know make you and it's only one part of a treatment plan it is not everything absolutely um I just want to cover I guess postpartum planning in not just personal experience but you do this professionally mm. and I thought let's let's have you talk about this because I think this is such a a field that we need to prepare for um yeah like at about one year postpartum I sort of started to turn my head to the fact that there was a huge gap in how we were preparing women for postpartum and particularly professional women and um, it took me sort of another year to figure out how I could play a role in that in a sort of professional services context. And, you know, through my corporate experience and then also like my general economics background, which is all about efficient allocation of resources. And then I thought, okay, well, like what are the key themes in postpartum? Like I need to create like a simple planning framework that is actually going to help people what are the issues that I had in my postpartum? The fact is, A, I didn't have a plan. B, I resented my partner a lot for the fact that he could walk out the door and have a life at work and could sort of escape the the baby stuff and escape a lot of the, the responsibilities around the home and a lot of the mental load. Um, and I thought, okay, well, how can I create a framework that can actually help women? You know, through my professional work, I was aware of this particular planning framework that was put together um, by Strategizer. Um, it's called a business model canvas. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to use this like physical framework, but I'm going to chunk it down. So that's when I thought, okay, well, let's try to make this really simple, really easy and very visually um, easy to use. Please tell me this involves an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> Please tell me. Well, <laughs> well, it <laughs> Well, um, yeah, I mean, I have all of that sort of background. So yeah. I try to, but I know a lot of people are just scared of Excel. But effectively, it's just it's just a, an A3 or an A4, however you print it, and it's it's literally a plan on a page that I've com compartmentalized into mind, body, home, your support resources, questions to facilitate like a to do list and iterations. Um, and a big relationships um, section as well. So it's really you're able to sort of chunk down um, 
and nutrition as well, like all things that are really, really important in postpartum. And I have these guiding questions which enable you to think, okay, well, how am I going to secure good nutrition in postpartum? Like what do my preferences look like in that way? What do my resources look like in that context? How can I leverage my existing resources or how can I, how can I find um, resources so that I can outsource these kind of tasks to reduce the mental load and to prioritise my healing? Um, how can I organise my home um, in order to to be conducive to the postpartum period? So I talk to people a lot about like dog walking and having neighbours take out your bins and it might seem like really um, primitive stuff but it also comes down to, you know, things like who's doing the home admin in terms of like, you know, your birth certificate, your Medicare um, changes that are required, your paid parental leave if you're eligible, who's taking on, you know, your grocery ordering. And because a lot of this time, if people aren't actually delegated, then they're naturally not going to feel like they're accountable for anything. And then often it will fall on the non-working parent, what I say non-working, non-professional working parent or non-paid parent, which usually tends to be the woman. And it can just, it can just cause overwhelm and it's, it works against prioritizing your healing and your mental well-being in postpartum because you know your job really is to focus on you know your physical healing and your matrescence journey and and the bond that you've got with your baby so you know the main focus that i put into place is the focus of the mother and then trying to get her village or her, or her support team to feel accountable and to feel necessary um in order to promote her well-being because it's such a vulnerable time and you're in a new role your body is healing your mind is changing you are in such an incredibly transformative time you know different to you and me some people won't have those those issues until later on in the first year you'll know all too well that the suicide risk is is towards the end of the first year postpartum so some people might actually you know, just be hanging on or not so confronted in the earlier months. But then really as the support completely dissipates as your baby's older, it's harder then to reach out and go, actually, I need some more support, like I'm not coping. Like postpartum forever is never too late and you are still at risk of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And what we see is that there's a huge uplift in diagnoses after the one-year mark people are just hanging on for that one year and that's probably similar to like how I was hanging on for my six-week obstetric appointment because I was like I've just got to get to this appointment and then everything will get better like you think that it gets so much easier after one year but if you haven't been treated and you've gone so long in a really um you know being so deprived of support then you know the wheels can still fall off I I love that you've you've gone through this you've adapted Mm. for the betterment of yourself and your family but also for other women like you put this into play so that other women don't go through what you went through or that the likelihood is less that they go through this and I I just have to admire that oh thank you and that's a huge like value and I just keep on bringing this back to this is about you what you want and sometimes you just need someone to support you so yeah I'm a big advocate for preemptive and proactive support at whatever stage you're at I mean my psychiatrist continues to tell me like her severe patients like she'll often see until they've got kids who are in preschool because that's how long it takes to heal that's how long it takes to get used to this transition so there's no hard or fast rules on when you can start postpartum planning and when postpartum support is of value because it's of value all the time I think what I'd like to do, if it's okay, is I wanted to talk more specifically about the contamination OCD and maybe to, oh, yeah. and to maybe talk about some of the questions that we received. Like, do you want to answer any of those questions collaboratively? Because I think that, that would be good. Yeah, please. So if we start off with the contamination OCD while being pregnant or, or as a mother of a young baby, mm. um, you answered this really well on Instagram where you talked about how there's like, just kids are gross and they can't do too much on their own like you know we have to change their nappies and often they can't get their own snot out of their mouth or often they're drooling from teething or like they lick everything or vomit or whatever like it is it is gross and I'm I'm usually okay with that side of it but my contamination OCD has always been around 
her getting sick from other people or me doing something which then leads her to being sick. So mm. compulsively cleaning the kitchen so she doesn't get any food poisoning. Um, you know, sterilising. I sterilised well well after one year. Still worried about things. If, if a dummy hit the ground, you know, there was absolutely no way that I was going to put that back in her mouth. Some parents would just lick it off and then put it back in their mouths, whereas, like, that wasn't something that I felt comfortable doing. And, you know, it really took her being a bit older for me to be able to get better at, at exposing myself to germs and public places like parks and you know but if I hear a kid cough in a park um, like with a really phlegmy cough I'm usually out of there pretty quickly and what it's led to is the fact that she's maybe had like two colds in three and a half years which isn't necessarily a great thing but you know with COVID I've just always been so scared about her getting COVID like we've taken pretty extreme lengths not to get it Mm. and I'm not suggesting that you do that, but there's definitely been judgment from people um, where people think, well, it's not that bad. It wasn't that bad for me, so why are you so worried about it? And for for me, you know, if you hear about, you know, chronically sick kids or kids that have died with COVID, like irrespective of whether they have a pre-existing condition or that or whatever, those that just feeds into the uncertainty, right? So I'm like, I would never forgive myself if anything happened to her. My biggest fear was seeing my little boy in the hospital with a ventilator. Yeah. That image, I could not get out of my head. Yeah. So I I spoke about this on Instagram, but I don't have a very big contamination OCD theme. It's mild and yeah. it's been mild most of my life, yeah. but COVID really, look, it didn't make it acute, yeah. but it played such a factor and it was such a big thing in my mind if my husband had to go out to get groceries I'm like did you touch that I would be obsessively refreshing you know did was there an incident anywhere at any time oh my god so it wasn't just me were you just like so disappointed when they stopped when they stopped contract tracing yes (laughs) (laughs) I just from and I mean it's probably a good thing it was enabling that of course need for control yeah I was all across I was all across the contract tracing too and um just the constant yeah the constant risk assessment Mm. and a question for you is you know have you been able to has your OCD around COVID reduced now oh definitely okay I'm no good I'm still bad (laughs) I mean it's our coping mechanism yeah and that's the thing about you know our coping behaviors is that they're good for a certain amount of time. They're not inherently evil or bad, Mm. but at some point they inhibit our ability to function (laughs) without them. I think I'm in a different place where it's it's, it's taken a while to get there, but I'm at the point where, okay, I feel like I can live in this COVID world without my OCD wanting to take over. But then what about in the context of Levi? Like those worries about him getting sick where are you at there (laughs) this is going to sound terrible I'm at the point where I'm like uh because I put him into daycare those Uh (laughs) those germs originally were terrifying that first week he was at daycare there was a COVID uh, you know a case in the daycare and so I pulled him out that first week that's not Mm. viable long term because Mm. I'm getting emails (laughs) you know sometimes twice a day from daycare telling me there's a conjunctivitis outbreak. There's hand, foot and mouth. There's lice. Keep an eye on this. Mm. And he didn't get half of that, but he got mm. some of it. You know, he got mm. RSV. He got rhinovirus. He got conjunctivitis. We've been through this. We've been through the flu. T- touch wood, we have yet to go through COVID. But I'm mm. at the point where we've been through some, oh, gastro, my God, that was the worst. But they've been exposures. Yeah. In, in a way, I've been forced into exposure therapy, you know, in an informal way. But that's that's great that you're there and the fact that he has been sick almost weekly for six months and he's gotten through it. And I mean, I don't dismiss I don't dismiss fears of COVID because I know no. what it's like, especially as a first-time parent mm. in a pandemic lockdown, to be sitting there consumed with this fear of my child on a ventilator in hospital and feeling so hopeless. I I can't dismiss those fears. So if people 
wear masks, if people, you know, do things that aren't part of the health order at the moment, go for it. Like wear your masks, you know, stay away from crowds. Like if that's what you've got to do for your own sanity, then do it. Um, I've just been pushed in a different direction by things out of my control. And that's amazing. And the fact that I I have more control. I think has meant that the exposure has been a lot less and I suppose I'm in a slightly different circumstance because I am pregnant as well Mm. and I have a mother who is diabetic and she would almost certainly need a hospital bed if she got COVID and if I I got COVID, she would get COVID Mm. and then it just catastrophizes in my mind that if we got COVID and we were like kept apart, like how would that affect my mental health? The fact that it's an uncertain outcome for me is terrifying and that limits my life so it's not you know it's not just even COVID OCD latches onto what it latches to absolutely so like I have these safety behaviors like I don't want to listen to the news and hear about the the fact that there are no hospital beds in Queensland at the moment because then that (laughs) like like I do my best like part like part of my coping mechanism is like I'd rather just not know Mm. Um, ignorance is bliss yeah ignorance is bliss (laughs) because I can't control that Mm. I can't control that there's no hospital beds right now no I think everyone's OCD type will be different but in a long way a long way to answer that question is that you know contamination OCD is definitely a big theme particularly when they're when they're little and I think that it's really important that you seek support um, and good coping mechanisms for it because it's not something that we can get rid of and it's something that our kids are going to be exposed, whether it's COVID or whether it's childcare illnesses or whatever, they're going to be exposed to things. Definitely. Um, I'll intervene here as well and just talk about, we've spoken about this before, but there's another compulsion that really took hold um, in the postpartum period. So do you mind sharing about the kitchen scales? Ah, the kitchen scales. (laughs) So I have the, I had these um, little Woolworths pink digital kitchen scales that had a button battery at the back, but no screw to secure the button battery, which is obviously required because it can be very dangerous if kids swallow those batteries. Everything else in the house with a button battery had the screw and that was enough of a safety mechanism for me not to become obsessive about checking whether the screw was done up. But in the event of the kitchen scales, I really became obsessed with checking that the back was secured correctly as well as that the battery was still inside and that was I was doing that dozens of times a day. And this is up until last year. So probably Libby was two when when I was still doing this. And I got to the stage where I felt like <laughs> I'd been exposed to this so much because they sit in my kitchen 24-7 and I just wasn't getting any benefit to the exposure and I was just getting more and more compulsive about checking. So. I went to my psychiatrist and spoke to her about it and she said, okay, well, what are you doing about the kitchen scales? Like, how are you doing, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I've thrown them out. So that was the way that I dealt with it because the cost of the checking, the time, the compulsion, the increased anxiety from the fact that the more that we check things, the more uncertain we become. And so the benefit of having them was largely outweighed by the cost of what this was imposing on me. So I threw them out and my psychiatrist laughed at me as a joke saying, okay, well, that's one way to deal with it. Um, But it was really the only way that I could sleep well at night was to know, okay, well, that is not something I have to check anymore. And just a question here, um, were the kitchen scales within reach of Liv or were they up (laughs) on a higher shelf? That's a really good question. That's a really, really good question. Because I I want people to understand that it can be as logical as, oh, it's up on a top shelf, she can't reach mm. it. OCD isn't logical. No, it's absolutely not logical. No, it was on the top of our fridge. Mm-hmm. So she would have to drag a kitchen chair over, climb it, climb onto the kitchen bench and then reach on her tippy toes and bend over at a 40-degree angle to be able to reach the scales and do all of that before I could get to her. 
So it's highly unlikely that would happen. And I suppose it was never really about the location because that's where I keep our little medication box. So I feel okay about that location. But yeah, it, it wasn't logical at all. So I'd already I'd done as much as I could to minimize the risk by taking it out of head height, but still it wasn't enough that it was all it was the fixation was on the fact it was a button battery. And just the uncertainty around that was just so extreme. And I don't know about you, but um, I was really secretive about when I would do my checking because I wouldn't want my husband to see me checking because I think I'm, you know, almost certain that, yeah, I've had a longer history too, but it was, um, you know, superstitious and did things evenly mm. and all that sort of stuff. It was largely mental. So when yeah. the compulsion sort of became physically, you know, demonstrated, then it becomes much more of something that he's going to be picking up on. Yeah, so when I'd be checking that the freezer and fridge were closed like 30, 40 times a day minimum, um, I would always try to do it at a time where he wasn't sort of around to see because I knew he would just be worried about me. Um, do you want to talk about how the question about how we can get rid of intrusive thoughts? Oh, yes, my God, I really was dying to answer this one. And yeah. I'm going to just, you know, put out a warning there you're not going to like the answer but the answer is no we we cannot get rid of our intrusive thoughts <laughs> as much yeah. as it doesn't feel like it they are normal um I remember you know when I first found out I had OCD and I was in the MBU and it wasn't even the harm to my baby which was the biggest OCD theme I had it was it was one of those sexual thoughts, which, you know, we, we don't yeah. talk about and it's not comfortable to talk about. And I told the nurses and I told the psychiatrist, and, and this is an OCD thing as well, that confessional yes, ritual. Absolutely. And so I sat down and I said, yep. you know, I've had these thoughts for, a, you know, a couple of weeks and, and they were so beautiful, my goodness. Oh. To have them explain to me, it's ego-dystonic. It goes against your values. That's why you're distressed. We all go through it, even though we think, oh, my God, I must be the only mother thinking this. I'm a terrible mother. No, we feel alone at that point in time. And it just was so validating. My, my point is whether we become distressed yeah. by them or not, they're not thoughts that reflect us as people, our values, our mm. character. I know it's not the answer people want to hear. People want to hear we can get rid of these thoughts. No, we can't. What we can do, what we can learn to do, whether it's through DBT, whether it's through exposure therapy, is to minimise our fixation on them and therefore minimise the distress that those intrusive yep. thoughts cause, which then in turn minimise our ritualistic behaviours around them. And I think like a big way of, of stopping that like shame and rumination cycle is through sharing like what, what we're doing today and understanding that 90% of parents have these thoughts and it's really important to stop, you know, thinking that we're terrible parents for having them because that's absolute crap. It has nothing to do with the quality of parents that we are. And the fact that when you do have these sort of thoughts, they are not reflective of the likelihood that you will act upon them. And, you know, for me, I was like, I'm a terrible mother for having these thoughts in the first place. And I felt scared that I was going to drop her over the balcony or, you know, do something terrible to her. When you've got OCD, like you've never been encouraged to like sit with oh, negative God, no. feelings, well, at least my experience, you know, just to sit and go like I I feel bad or I feel anxious that I don't know the outcome to that or whatever or I feel anxious that I had that thought but as you say you talk yourself around and go well it's just a thought mm. doesn't reflect who I am as a person or as a mother um, which is really difficult when you've got the same form of OCD that you and I have where you are you are trying to prove your morality a lot um, oh, absolutely. You know, which is all of this is just bloody exhausting, isn't it? It is. And I mean, <laughs> motherhood, parenthood in general just brings all these themes to the surface, especially because it's not just, okay, am I capable of harming myself or a random stranger? It suddenly latches on to, am I capable of harming myself? Yep. That's why we see um, OCD more frequently in the postpartum period than any other time in a woman's life. Yeah, I really want to talk about this. Um, I was so ashamed about it and I think because the prevalence just wasn't out there. Mm. But the slide that you've put together where, you know, you have this new paper which has then shown 
something like a seven or eight percent prevalence in pregnancy, which is really significantly higher. Mm. And then that more than doubles in postpartum, closer to 17 percent. Yeah, which for me was just wild. And that made me feel so validated and so much more normal. I think there just must be such an overlay. And I'm not quite sure why there is not more specific diagnosis of OCD. I think it's fair to say that it's quite common for OCD to be swept under the rug of anxiety because it is an anxiety disorder. There is a lot of crossover between the two, but the difference being is that OCD comes with that fixation on intrusive thoughts and the distress and then the rituals that we then perform in order to alleviate the distress Mm -hmm. that we get from those intrusive thoughts. So I think a big part of it, as you were saying before, is Mm -hmm. that we don't talk about our intrusive thoughts is a big thing. I think another thing is that Mm -hmm. we're not educated on what OCD is. And that that relates into, you know, the lack of general awareness of postpartum depression anxiety too. I thought, well, um, I'm not lying in bed all day sad, therefore I don't have postpartum depression because that's what I saw in the movies. (laughs) Yeah. That was the level. I had no antenatal education about it, so I didn't know what to be looking out for. And the fact that you could have like between 50 and 100 symptoms of all different combinations, which mm. could then lead to a diagnosis. Like I did not understand that. So, yeah, yeah but I, yeah, it is definitely to a greater degree in the, in the OCD space. But I think, do you agree that like anxiety in itself is often quite a sexy, um, like, mental illness like people are like oh I'm so anxious so like I've cleaned the whole house today like it's a it's related to productivity a lot of the time yeah and, and I mean we yeah. hear things like high functioning anxiety yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. but I mean even OCD can sometimes be I know you don't think it's sexy but I think there is a sexy element to it in the sense that people will say oh I'm so OCD I labeled my you know stationery or my clothes or whatever but it's <laughs> there's so much more to it and I I really dislike when people say things like oh I'm so depressed I'm so anxious today those are valid feelings do not get me wrong those are valid feelings there's a big difference though between the feeling and the diagnosis and what I wish people knew is the pain that comes with I mean anxiety depression OCD there is so much pain and there is nothing sexy about having it control your life that's the that's the part I wish people understood is that there is so much behind that diagnosis and this feeds into you know a delay in an under diagnosis rate um mm, absolutely in, in postpartum um, mental health disorders in general because people go oh well it's just a tough time yeah. and it, you know and then that stops people from going to seeking help and then you know pe- women die um, yeah, I like absolutely. to be really dramatic about it because that's that's just what happens. Like people literally get to a point of not being able to live anymore, yeah, because of these conditions, and they're perceived as weak if they go on medication. And I remember when I first got my medication at five weeks postpartum, I went on SSRI from my GP before I went to, to see a psychiatrist, and I felt so much shame about it. Um, I was so worried about the impact that being on medication was going to have on my baby through the transmission with breast milk. Mm. And that's also like I hear that a lot in the in the community as well. Women go, well, I don't want to go on a medication because I don't want it to affect breastfeeding. And, you know, it's like I'm not a medical professional, but I've seen a hell of a lot of them and they tell me how safe these drugs are, mm. <laughs> you know, particular drugs, like particular drugs and how safe they are. And I think that like there's, there's a couple of points I want to make here because mm. – you know, I was seeing a GP who was really, really old school and really conservative and who I believe with no medical training whatsoever but was a highly anxious person herself and she would literally say to me, she gave me the wrong medical advice. So she was saying to take a subclinical dose of it because she was perpetuating my worry about how it was going to um, get into my breast milk and she was saying take it at night because then that's the longest period of time um, between breastfeed, so your daughter will, will get less exposure. Now, what that meant was I didn't take enough of it. I didn't start on a therapeutic dose. No. And second of all, I was taking it at night, and these particular SSRIs you take in the morning because yes. they keep you. It was exacerbating my insomnia, so it was terrible yeah. advice. And then the psychiatrists that I saw were really cross about it. They were like, "That is not the right advice." Mm. And then. Like a good friend of mine who went into a mother-baby unit, she ends up on the maximum dose and then the leading psychiatrist there is saying, 
this is the safest thing for the safest drug for mm. breastfeeding and you can absolutely take 200 milligrams and be absolutely fine um and if you want to breastfeed fine mm-hmm. the other thing the other point i wanted to make was that the psychiatrist at the mother baby unit was saying to me oh well she didn't identify breastfeeding as a trigger for me and something that was actually detracting from my mental health and she was saying to me oh well you should continue to breastfeed for the bond with your baby it was actually working against that it was actually decreasing the bond with my baby and it was a big problem and it really took my my psychiatrist with now who was actually going she was talking to me about the fact that how overplayed it is the benefits of breast milk and you know your daughter deserves a healthy mother more than she deserves before that she needs breast milk and all Mm. this sort of stuff this is the start of the information that was receiving that was really helpful and this Mm. is the kind of information which has then guided me to do the work that I'm doing because in the you know you can get some really shit advice even if somebody is a doctor you can get terrible advice and advice which isn't evidence-based and it's not best for mother and that's why like I I continuously say to women like you need to get good health advice and so if you're not getting mother-centric evidence-based modern advice and balanced advice you're not Mm. in the right room like you don't have the right person um, with Olivia's um, pediatric dietitian, she's very pro breastfeeding, but she's not pro breastfeeding in my context. Mm. And she's very open to formula, and she's very supportive of families using formula. And they're the kind of people that you need. Like you don't want to see anyone that makes you feel bad about the decisions, or they make you feel like you have to limit your decisions to fit into a mold. Mm. And that goes from birth as well. That's like all the way through pregnancy and birth. Like there's no one way to birth. There's no one mm. way that makes sense for everyone. So, you know, I'm a really big advocate to just enable that gray space and to enable the fact that the care and the decision making needs to be around you as an individual. And that's the thing. For some mums, medication isn't the right absolutely factor in their treatment plan or discontinuing breastfeeding isn't necessarily the right thing for them for whatever reason you know they don't have to switch to formula and you and I are both big Mm -hmm. advocates of not pushing one over the other we're very much needing to have these conversations where we remove the stigma without pushing how do I put this so I'm here and a big part of why I'm starting this podcast is because I want to reduce Mm -hmm. the shame associated with formula feeding with medication and with psychiatric hospitals do I think everyone should go on medication do I think everyone should formula feed do I think everyone should go in a psych hospital absolutely not you know but I want to reduce that stigma so I want to have those conversations and I think we need our medical professionals to be having those conversations that are suitable for the individual absolutely I couldn't agree more and that's my rant (laughs) no I love it and I just also want to touch on the fact that just before we go one point is that you know, the pace of healing or like your own individual journey, like our journeys look very, very different in terms of um, our openness, like, and maybe the mother baby unit is what got you there or, or it might've just been your journey in any event. But I really didn't talk about any of this until my daughter was over one. Whereas, you know, you've created this platform and this podcast and, you know, such a great following and support through Instagram and you've done it all like within a year of having your son, which is so amazing. Some women might get to this when they've had their, when their babies are five years old, when their kids are five exactly. years old. Like it doesn't, there's no cutoff um, no. on when you can partake in this journey. And there's also no requirement to be really um, open about your own mm. individual circumstances if it makes you feel uncomfortable. We're happy to come together and to create some resources that hopefully make you feel less alone and validated and a little more part of a community. Yeah, we all try to make sense of it in our own time and in our own way because our experiences, our knowledge of mental health, I knew what was happening. I knew what was happening and I knew I needed help straight away before it got worse. That was obviously an acute episode. Not everyone goes through that, thank goodness. I mean, I obviously I never heard of an MBU. I'd never thought about a psychiatric hospital. I never thought it could get that bad. But I had the experience and obviously the financial and emotional support around me that getting better was possible and getting better quickly was possible as well. Well, yeah, you did your own version of postpartum playing when when you were pregnant, which is great. But this all all of what you've said, you know, has put you in a great position to be a really relatable and a powerful advocate in this space um, at a very early part of your motherhood journey too because we all know the power of 
peer support oh, yeah. and the power of um, you know, listening to other women's stories, which is, you know, which is why what you're doing with the podcast is so, is so important. Like it was a big part of my healing and like what you talked about earlier in the episode when you were in the MBU, like looking at those women who have moved on with their lives and gotten better, like mm. that, that stuff is, is inspiring and motivational. Um, yeah, that shared experience is, is really powerful and really healing. I think that that's a good message to end on. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to, to speak to you live rather than by a direct message. I'm thankful to my friend Lisa from Play Nourish Thrive or from Dr. Lisa Researcher for encouraging me to reach out to you because I was thinking I, there just isn't enough discussion in general about like all the things we've discussed today, but particularly around postpartum OCD, there just isn't enough content out there. No. So congratulations. And I know you've got lots of other guests who are going to be touching on this as well. So I'm glad to be one of them, mm. which is great. The more, the merrier. Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.